This week's Perusia podcast with Scott Hahn is taken from an interview which was broadcast live on the Perusia Facebook page. Um, I'm super excited to have our, our guest all the way from the United States. He is no stranger to the Catholic world. Um, I have a, a bio that I'm going to read um, and, and bear with me. We know men, much about him, but I'm going to read this um, and make sure it, it is all correct. Here we go. Dr. Scott Hahn is our guest, and he is at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, where he has taught since 1990. He's the founder and president of the St. Paul Center, an apostolate dedicated to teaching Catholics to read scripture from the heart of the church. Dr. Hahn has been married to Kimberly for 40 years, and together they have six children and eight grandchildren. Two of their sons are currently in priestly formation with the Diocese of Steubenville. He is the author uh, of over 40 popular and academic books. Dr. Scott Hahn's works include the best-selling titles, Rome Sweet Home, which I always have a copy of, uh, The Lamb Supper, The Fourth Cup, Hail Holy Queen. His most recent release is titled Hope to Die, the Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body. He's the editor of Academic Journal Letter and Spirit, a journal of Catholic biblical theology. Dr. Hahn graduated from Grove City College in 1979 with his BA in Theology, Philosophy and Economics. He receives he received his MDiv from Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in 1982 and his PhD in Theology from the Marquette University in 1995. He was ordained in 1992 at Trinity Presbyterian Church, and he entered the Catholic Church at the Easter Vigil of 1986. Over the last three decades, Dr. Hahn has delivered thousands of popular talks and academic lectures nationally and internationally on a wide range of topics related to scripture, theology, and the Catholic faith. And I encourage you to visit his website at scotthahn.com, as well as the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and uh, and get on, on all the Facebook. So I wanna welcome everybody uh, I'm Shabal Raish, Director of Perusia, and we are live on the Perusia page, on Cradio, on Sydney Catholic events. We're also on the St. Paul Centre. So those in America, g'day. And uh, and he joins me right now. Hello, Scott Hahn. How are you doing, Sharpel? Great to see Good. you. Doing really well. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's uh, such an honour to have you on and, um, and get you in this very interesting time of ours um, during the quarantine time of lockdown. Well, it's great to be with you. That long introduction, we have to find a way to shorten. <laughs> we only have two and a half minutes left for our interview. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, uh, that's, uh, I, we that do have directors from the office. <laughs> that's right. Grandchild number 19 is due in September, so we'll revise oh, the bio accordingly. <laughs> that's right. We'll do. We'll do. Thank you so much for joining us. So um, very excited about um the brand new release of your book, Hope to Die. And I really would like to talk a bit about that because the timing couldn't be um, any better, so to speak, uh, with with a reminder of life uh, after death. And uh, can we talk into uh, this work? Did you actually set this up purposefully? Did you know COVID-19 was coming and you timed this around this time? <laughs> well, if you don't tell anybody. <laughs> no, of course I didn't. No. Uh, but I think, you know, I had my reasons and I had my own timing, but God had his, and it turned out to be, you know, far superior. But I do think that this timing um, is significant because, you know, we don't, we don't usually like to talk about death, 
Uh, we don't even like to think about it. We don't like to confront it. We avoid it. And all of the suffering that goes into it, you know, we, we know that life is precious and that death is tragic. And we have been profoundly shaken by the reminders of suffering and death for the last several weeks in a way that is simply unprecedented in modern human history. In some ways, it reminds us of the way things used to be uh, locally with epidemics and plagues and pestilences, you know. So it kind of is the old normal, but it's entirely new for us. And I think it presents us with an opportunity not only to recognize that life is sacred and precious and that death is tragic, but to remind ourselves as humans, but also as Catholic Christians, that there is life and then there is life. There is life that is natural. And in the book, I describe that in terms of the Greek term bios, you know, reminiscent of biology, the study of life. But I point out that in Genesis 2, when God breathed into the nostrils of our first father, the breath of life, that breath of life was described as zoe in the Greek, in the Septuagint. And so we distinguish the, the physical and the natural and the human forms of life that we know from the spiritual the supernatural, the divine life that God gave to our first father in the beginning. And I think it's significant not only to understand that passage in Genesis 2 and 3, but also to understand our own situation now. You know, in Genesis 2 verses 7 to 17, we hear of how this man got the breath of life. So he had not only oxygen to breathe, he had the breath of God's spirit. So he had natural life, but there was also the mystery of supernatural life. And so 10 verses later, when we read in Genesis 2.17 about how God warns him from against eating the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden fruit, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die, wasn't an idle threat because when they ate it, they committed a mortal sin. As we read in 1 John 5.17, the sin unto death. And the term in 1 John is thanatos, the same term used in Genesis 2.17. And so they died the moment they ate, they committed a mortal sin. And this isn't a metaphorical death. This is a death that is real. And in some ways, it's deeper and darker, but it's, uh, it's, it's more tragic. To lose human life is a tragedy. To lose divine life is not less, but far more of a tragedy and far more of a death. And so, in a sense, our first parents committed spiritual suicide. So when we speak of the original sin that they committed, we see that it snuffed out the life of God in their soul. And when we think about the original sin that we contract from our parents going back to them, it isn't something that leaves us depraved as children who are newborn, the way I believe there's a Calvinist, but it does leave us deprived of the life that our first parents had and then lost due to this mortal sin. And so here in the afterglow of Easter, when we look at the resurrection of Jesus, into which we enter through baptism, as Paul describes original sin in Romans 5, 12 to 21, he then immediately goes to discuss baptism in Romans 6. In those first two or three verses, he reminds us that those who have been baptized have been united into his death and his resurrection, precisely because baptism basically restores that supernatural, divine, and eternal life to us, in effect, resurrecting us even more than Jesus resurrected Lazarus after four days, 
because that man got life back, but it was only natural and human. We get life back that is supernatural and divine, a life that is even more sacred and precious than natural life, but life that is also quite vulnerable to our misuse of free choice. And so I think the, the, the purpose of the book is to remind us of the sacredness of life and what a privilege it is to share it and what a tragedy it is to lose it. But at the same time, the need that we face to kind of relearn old lessons that will remind us that however long we live on this planet, 70, 80, 90, maybe even 100 years, that's nothing compared to that life for which we were created into which we then enter when we die. Life doesn't end, it's changed from this terrestrial form into something that is eternal. And the resurrection is the climax of that, where we do get our bodies back, not just bodies that are doubles, you know, like the body that we had before, but the miracle of Christ's redemption is not only to infuse our souls with the life of the Trinity, but to also deify our bodies as he has has been raised from the dead and his body is deified, it's divinized. So the resurrection is much more than a resuscitation as it was for Lazarus. It's much more than a miracle, like Jairus's daughter being brought back to life. It's more than the fulfillment of the prophecies where he spoke many times of how he'd be raised on the third day, just as we read in accordance with scripture there in the creed. It really is the transformation of our, of our humanity. He has assumed what is ours, div- human nature, to give us what is his, divine nature, and that's exactly why the Eucharist is so central. The resurrection is ordered to the Eucharist. Not only do you see that in Luke 24, where he was made known in the breaking of the bread, but in Christian teaching, the Catholic Church makes it clear that the real presence of Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity is his resurrected body. It's the same that was in the upper room. It's the same body that was on the cross and buried in the tomb, but it's not undergoing those mortal conditions anymore. It is not only deified and glorified, it has the capacity to turn around and deify and glorify us as well. The Holy Spirit makes this bread into his resurrected body and makes his body communicable to us, indeed, edible, so he can fulfill that pledge that he made back in John 6. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise him up on the last day. When we assimilate his resurrected body, it's different than when I eat a hamburger. I assimilate that meat to my body and it's no longer meat. But when we assume, when we assimilate the Holy Eucharist or when we consume the Blessed Sacrament, he assimilates us to his own resurrected, glorified body so as to prepare us to go through death in a way that is no longer the loss of life. For him, he turned death into prayer. He turned death into the gift of life, and not only for himself, but also for us, so that what looked like a Roman execution was, in fact, the consummation of the sacrifice of love. And again, it wasn't just then and there. It's here and now. It's not just by him for us. It's also in us. And so, you know, when you look at the sacred mysteries that constitute the Catholic faith, you realize the gospel that I always believed as an evangelical Protestant is multiplied exponentially. Not only is there no subtraction, there isn't even simple addition. It really is good news that's almost too good to be true, unless it is. And then it surpasses our highest hopes. It goes beyond our wildest dreams. And, you know, I 
I've got to slow down because I get very excited about this stuff, you know, and you're just waking up over there. You know, you're 14 hours ahead. When we greeted each other, I had to say good morning to you, even though it's quite evening to us. Thank you so much. There is so much in what you just said um, and to unpack and, and maybe, uh, and due to our time, I mean, we could go into what you said about the state we were before the fall, um, the death that Adam and Eve experienced. But I'm, uh, what we're saying here is, Jesus didn't just resuscitate or, or reclaim that. Are you saying what we have is so much more than what Adam and Eve actually had before the fall? And, and is right. that to summarize what you basically said is we are even more privileged than, than ever um, as post-resurrection Christians. That's right. You know, as Christians, we all agree that grace heals human nature, of the effects of sin mm. and grace restores human nature to what it was before. But the distinctive element of the Catholic faith is that grace not only heals and perfects, it also elevates. As we read in 2 Peter 1, 4, we have been made partakers of the divine nature, as we would have heard at the Easter Vigil if we had been allowed to attend. And I'm not here yeah. to criticize <laughs> any Episcopal decisions. I'm just knowing that the Easter exaltet would have been the hymn intoned by the one presiding at the beginning of the Easter Vigil liturgy. And there you hear about this necessary fault, this happy fault, Felix culpa, uh, because you know God in his permissive will allowed our first parents to sin and to commit a mortal sin and to snuff out the life of God in their soul. But in a certain sense, this was not you know, leading to plan B, Christ, the new Adam, Mary, the new Eve. No, that was plan A from the outset. And so we end up in Christ better off than we would have been in Adam, as his offspring, even if he hadn't sinned, because whatever righteousness would have accrued to him would have been real, but finite. Whereas what accrues to us by virtue of our own entrance into this communion with Christ is something that is immeasurably greater because it is originally divine. You know, and I don't want to get too, you know, I don't want to get too lofty here. You know, it's so late for us. It's so early for you. You know, maybe you didn't have breakfast yet. But I do think this is the feast of the Catholic faith for which we, we this is why God made us with brains. And this is the best use of our minds. And at the same time, it isn't just a kind of head trip because it goes straight from the head to the heart. And it's illuminating as far as divine light goes, but it enkindles a fire because when this, you know, when this reaches down into our heart and we realize that God the Father has allowed so much suffering and death, it isn't, it isn't in spite of his love. It's precisely because of his love. Suffering and death end up being, in a certain sense, the chisel that the divine sculptor uses to sculpt sinners into saints into a way, you know, in a way that we could never do for ourselves or for God. And one last thought I want to just throw out there, because, you know, whenever we hear the gospel, we say, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. But I think it can almost come out sounding like, you know, a parrot saying, Polly want a cracker. You know, we know we're supposed to say it. We do dutifully and sincerely. But Jesus says things in the gospels that are kind of strange. And when we hear them dutifully, we say, yep, that's true, even if I don't understand it, you know. It's a lot like when he was approaching the house of Jairus to heal his daughter who was sick unto death until she died. 
But then he had to go tell the mourners, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. And of course, they began to taunt him and jeer instead of mourn. And so when he goes into the room with Peter, James, and John, of course, he's contracting ritual impurity according to the law of Moses, except that he doesn't because he raised her from the dead. But still, you have to ask, why, you know, why poke the, uh, the bee's nest? Why tell them that she's sleeping when you knew that she was dead? Well, clearly for Jesus, what we dread in death is something much less in his estimation that the death of the body and the loss of natural life is more like sleep compared to the consequences of contracting original sin or committing actual mortal sin. And the same thing happens again with Lazarus. He tells his disciples that he's very ill. Well, we'll go see him. Well, we'll wait. Uh, he's asleep. Well, if he's asleep, Jesus, he'll wake up. No, he's dead. Well, why didn't you say so in the first place? Once again, it's obvious that he wants to give us lessons. Like when he says, only if you lose your life for my sake, will you gain it? We recognize that sacred mysteries are penetrating the truth about Christ, who was the Son of God, who becomes the Son of Man in the fullness of time. But we don't recognize that Christian morality is more than just republishing the natural moral law or the Ten Commandments. It's basically allowing Jesus to reproduce his life and his suffering and death and resurrection in us. And in the process, you know, I think what we discover is, whoa, this is not metaphor, it's not exaggeration, it's not hyperbole. We have to lose our life in order to gain it. Because when it appeared to us that he lost his life, he was actually not losing his life. Up until Jesus, everybody who ever died lost their life. But he turned death into the gift of life. And the proof of that is, well, you've got to rewind from Good Friday to Holy Thursday. You've got to look at Calvary in the light of the institution of the Eucharist, because obviously he was doing something that anticipated that, that the crucifixion at Calvary, when he laid his hands upon the unleavened bread and spoke the words of consecration, you can see that he was already setting in the motion the gift of his life. And then with the chalice, even more. And as I'm fond of saying, if the Eucharist is just a meal, then Calvary was just a Roman execution. But only if the Eucharist is where the sacrifice is initiated can we see Calvary for what it really is, and that is where the sacrifice is consummated. So he wasn't the victim of Roman violence. He was the victim of divine love. He didn't lose his life on Friday. He made it a gift of love on Holy Thursday, and he empowers us with his resurrected body to turn our meager suffering and ultimately the hour of our own experience of death into a participation in this deifying experience of shame, agony, torture. And it's like only God Almighty could have dreamt this up, and only an Almighty God and Father would inflict this upon his kids because this goes beyond being grounded or being spanked or being scolded. I mean, in a certain sense, this, the inner logic of God allowing us to suffer and die is ultimately preparation for our glorification. You know, no pain, no gain. We've heard that before. No cross, no crown. But in a certain sense, without giving consent to the loss of human life out of love, we'll never enter back into the glory of divine life. And for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, you know, it almost makes our brains explode 
And for those who don't have eyes to see or ears to hear, it kind of makes their brains explode as well because they're looking at us saying, you know, they're crazy. You know, and in this sense, I think our opponents, our enemies, those who disagree with our faith vehemently, in some way might understand our faith better than we do. Because, you know, it, it's not absurd, it's not irrational, but it goes so far beyond reason and nature as to seemingly go against it. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think we do what Paul did, and that is we preach the word of the cross. This foolishness to Greeks who seek wisdom, you know, this sort of weakness to Jews who seek signs of power, and yet it is the wisdom and the power of God to show us on the cross you know, the single greatest sin of all of human history, the single greatest crime that God ever allowed us to commit against his holy love just also happened to be the single greatest mercy that God has ever displayed. While these men were allowed to torture and malign and execute this victim of crucifixion, he wasn't just forgiving us, he was forgiving them. They're killing him, he's redeeming them. I mean, this is more than just scratching your head. This is either patently absurd or this is divine truth. It's either a sacred mystery or something for which the world rightly feels sorry for us for swallowing. Wow. So much again, um, what you're saying there, and it's so true. I hope um, those who are listening to this, uh, you, you want to go back and listen to this again because it, you've got so much uh, richness in that. And and I love the enthusiasm you're sharing um, uh, Dr. Skahan, uh, you know, the, the main theme and, and re reading through the book, um, this, this misconception of, you know, once we die, the soul will leave the body and then we'll just be, uh, we, we don't really think through, we actually say in the creed, and you mentioned this in the book, um, that we will resurrect, we'll reunite with our bodies and that body that we have in heaven will be the same body, basically the clues of, of the resurrected body of Christ. So the glorified body, can you comment about I mean, this is radical stuff. Uh, so our human body will be reunited with our souls at some point in heaven, just like Jesus has this glorified body. He's carrying the wounds in heaven right now. Um, can you just comment further on that? And uh, I guess it's happening at there's, there's, there's that second and final judgment when we have that resurrection of the body. Uh, many people ask, what type of body is that? What age are you? What? And, and can we just comment on that? Because that's going even more radical than what the angels get. And so what you're saying, not only are we better than Adam and Eve in what we receive, but also angels are probably, uh, uh, I guess, uh, wanting what we have as well, what we're going to, to receive. Right. You know, first, let me take a step back and just underscore the 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 point that you were making, because I was flying fast and high, you know, it was a kind of yes. loft <laughs> and it was also rather passionate and enthusiastic, you know, but I, I do wonder why it was that my professors would deal with the subject matter of Christ's death and resurrection and drone on and on and just basically reproduce their outlines in my notebooks, you know, when this <laughs> stuff is too exciting to just drone on and on. I mean, there is a certain sense in which I need to tone it back, you know, and not get so passionate because I think that can almost distract from the, uh, the sacred truth, the mysteries of faith. Uh, but I, I, I do think that we have, uh, you know, God wants to scratch where we itch. You know, he wants to really answer some of the questions that we have about who we are as humans, why he gave us bodies 
unlike the angels, and why he gave us rational souls, unlike the animals, to make us persons who bear his image and likeness with this capacity to know the truth and to contemplate it, and with this capacity to choose the good and enter into relations of communion through love. I mean, animals can't do that as affectionate as I my, I felt for my, my dog Sparky, you know, and angels can't do that in a certain way either. And so we're sort of betwixt and between, you know, St. Thomas describes how human nature is a composite of contrary elements. The body made of matter is mortal. The soul is a spiritual substance, which is therefore immortal. And yet when grace was given to our first parents, Adam and Eve possessed this preternatural gift of physical immortality. So, you know, in a certain sense, it was above the natural, it was below the supernatural, and then it's lost and forgotten. And, you know, we come back to this and we live at a time where Christian truth doesn't really enter deeply into our conversations or into our own self-awareness. And so we kind of wonder about our body, you know, what role does it have? And there's a kind of love-hate relationship. On the one hand, we love our body too much by indulging it, and then flip that around, and we end up showing contempt to our body because we indulged it too much. And so it's for better, for worse. But when you take a step back, you can recognize that uh, the human body is more than a disposable carton. It's more than a box that contains the soul, well, for as long as it does until we die. And then we we basically shed the body the way a snake molts, you know, and we're kind of relieved to be delivered. Like Plato said, the soma, the body, is a sema, a prison. Well, no, it's not. God designed the body to be a sacrament, not a capital S sacrament, one of the seven, but a, a small S sacrament that is an efficacious sign. It is a powerful symbol. The body is a sacrament of the soul, of my very personhood, so that when I'm moving my lips and my lungs and my eyes, and you are listening, others are too, these bodily movements correspond to the intention of my will, to the deliberation of my intellect, to the convictions that make me a person, so that through my bodily actions of speech, I hope to be conveying in a quasi-sacramental way what unites us as persons, what makes us not just a human family, but what calls us to become a divine family and not by getting rid of our bodies. And in the Old Testament, there is a progressive revelation of this that I think it, it kind of eludes many biblical scholars who are sometimes so historically critical they're uncritical of their own criticism. They don't recognize that the gift of faith was given to the patriarchs and the prophets, which is why, you know, Genesis ends in chapter 50 with Jacob and Joseph both preoccupied about where their bodies are going to be buried. And Deuteronomy ends that way with regard to Moses. And the book of Joshua does as well. I point out in the book that three out of the first six Old Testament books are preoccupied in the closing chapter with where the bodies are going to end up being buried. They're not only treated with care, respect, and reverence, you know, and and God, of course, no, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and Joshua all know that the Lord God is capable of resurrecting a body that is buried in Egypt as much as it's buried in Horeb, in the promised land, or anywhere else, you know. So why is this preoccupation? Because 
you know, these patriarchs want to make a statement of faith to their kids, to their great grandkids. And you see this continuing in Job, for example. Job is not even an Israelite, and yet he can say, I know my Redeemer lives, and I'm going to see him again face to face in the flesh. By the time you get to the book of Tobit, you can see Tobias recognizing that the treatment of a corpse is one of the seven corporal works of mercy. And, you know, he risks his own life by showing such care for the dead bodies, and not only of his family members and friends, but of others as well. Pagans have never gotten this. Because in a certain sense, they had such an excessive and inordinate attachment to the passions of the flesh. You know, when the body is over and done, when you finally confront your suffering, your illness and mortality, you know, it's almost, ah, we're, 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 we're over and done, you know. Uh, God isn't. And so what he wants to do with our bodies is more than poetry, although it is divinely poetic. It is so, it is so amazing. So when the soul dies, it's disembodied. And Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5, the experience is so, sort of like being unclothed. We don't necessarily want to put back on our mortal bodies that are so aged, but we also don't want to be disembodied souls because we're humans, not angels. And so Paul describes the mortal body in terms of a tent. The term he uses is the tabernacle in Greek, skene, but he also says that God has destined us for a building not made with hands, a temple that is in the heavens. And so there is continuity from the body that dies to the body that will be raised in glory. As he also says in 1 Corinthians 15, it is like a seed that is sown corruptible, but raised incorruptible. Our bodies are perishable, but they are raised imperishable, and so what the gospel discloses is not only a life in heaven where we enter into the glory of the Holy Spirit with the angels, but an embodied life where our appetites are not going to go unsatisfied, but it isn't as though we're not going to be men or women. Our bodies are going to be, in a certain sense, sharing the identity, the integrity. If we lost a limb in war or whatever, we get it back. And we're going to also get our bodies back at their peak. And so St. Thomas Aquinas describes how our bodies will be first impassable, incapable of suffering and dying, and also subtle. That is, they're going to be not weighing the soul down like I do, like it does, like, you know, late at night when I want to stay up, but I can't because my body is so weary. No, the subtlety of the body is going to be entirely responsive to the soul. So if I think about, you know, a milkshake, the body is going to have it. You know, the power of the soul is going to govern the body. So it's impassibility. It's subtlety. It's also agility. The movement of the weakest resurrected body will surpass the greatest athlete in sports history. And so we also have this idea of clarity. That is, our bodies are going to be translucent, which means that we are going to be able to communicate our thoughts, our intentions, the love that we felt but we never could say the love that we feel, which is even more perfect than it ever was for our loved ones on earth. So the clarity of the soul is going to mean that we're going to enter not only into communication, but a communion that will make the first, you know, year of heaven, you know, better than a billion years of happiness on earth. It will make the happiness of heaven 
you know, if you look back on earthly life and, you know, the greatest date you ever had, the greatest family reunion you ever experienced will be like life in a garbage can compared to the way that we'll enter into a family communion in the face of God the Father. So eternity is more than just each of us staring at God and sort of contemplating the divine essence. It's much more than a staring contest because God is much more than a divine essence. He is an all-powerful, all-loving Father who wants his children to be enthralled with the gifts that he has lavished on us and now perfected in us through the resurrection of the body. The souls of the faithful departed are now disembodied. We could almost speak of the, you know, the Old Testament of eternal life. After the eschaton, when we do get our bodies back, you can see that the New Testament of eternity will be that resurrection experience. The Blessed Virgin Mary, in having her body assumed into glory, is sort of like Exhibit A, proof positive, the down payment. You know, and so what we have in her is basically the model. And the church is still trying our best to catch up to her in terms of, you know, the virginal purity of her bridal status as new Eve, as well as his, her maternal fruitfulness. Uh, uh, and, and not in a natural way, according to the flesh, but in the supernatural way that has made us all children of God, according to the spirit. And again, I realize I'm trying to squeeze an ocean through a funnel, or like my students say, you know, it's like sipping from a fire hydrant. But the fact is, I haven't been in a classroom with my students for almost seven weeks. And so I apologize to your audience, because I am more than making up for lost time, I am ripping their lips off. I'm sure they are appreciating every minute of this. And, and so please, those watching and listening, uh, take full advantage of this and, and let this sink in. This is, these are eternal truths so that go beyond this world and, and I can see the passion you have and it's the passion that inspired so many saints that have gone before us because this is real. This is this is real life and death, but eternal life. Um, and, and that's what's so exciting about our faith and, and what we have to look forward to. Death is not something we, we should fear. It's something we need to be prepared for and ready for because what's on the other side is so mind-blowing as we're learning today. Um, I've got so much. I want to go back and forth, but I do want to respect the um, the Q and A's as well. I've invited people to post some questions, and there's some interesting questions posted here, and I should ask on their behalf. And so, uh, what wait, I might do is before you do, go ahead and ask yes. another question or two, because our okay. friendship goes back so long. Yes, you that's have right. Been at our house more than once, and yes. <laughs> you know, everyone just wanted me to pass along greetings to Sharpel, and not only invite you back, but also assure you that we're going to try our best to respond to your 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 very faithful and generous invitation for for Kimberly and for me to join you down there down under so uh ask at least one more okay great well we'll do i, I want to respect your time so what i mean we've got 15 minutes it's according to the schedule time. time it's not my we can time <laughs> we can go we can if go. we can go then that's good because then that's i can slot in just a, a few things what you don't know dr scott hahn and the listeners is my first um exposure to you and a big shout out to Tom Petersek, a Croatian Catholic on fire for the Lord, um, uh, mentioned your name to me about 20 years ago. Mm. And then a, a retired Benedictine monk, uh, Father Chris, good friend of mine, uh, my spiritual director at the time, gave me this cassette. And it's, I'm holding it in my hand. And this is the very set. I don't know if you could see that. 
Oh, but calling read- Catholics to be Bible Christians and vice versa. And, and vice versa. I remember coming up with a title on the phone talking to Terry Barber, my good friend. Yes. <laughs> but that was uh, 20 years ago. I listened to this cassette, and I don't know if people today know what a cassette is. Uh, that's what they are, by the way. <laughs> like a Tyrannosaurus. Um, I still keep this. One of the dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> As a reminder. So that was the first time I heard your voice. In fact, I think St. Joseph speed up the tapes a bit. You sounded a bit like Jim Carrey in those ones because it was sped up. <laughs> but then I got to watch you. And the first time I watched you was on EWTN, and that was at Father Chris's house, and that was with Lamb Supper. You were with Mike Aquilina, and that was the first. And I said, oh, you sound different to the cassette. But to see your enthusiasm over 20 years ago, and I'm here in, on the other side of the world, um, and literally uh, if you followed Christ's... Um, command when he says make disciples of all nations go to the ends of the earth and australia is definitely the ends of the earth <laughs> for many uh people on the, uh, where you're from um but it's had a huge impact on me and I, I i went on to the all those class uh recordings you did genesis i used to actually have to let people know this but uh as i was studying in university and i did odd jobs i actually drove a taxi for a while and i had a cassette of your genesis uh, playing and the the actual passengers would listen. Oh, who's this? I said, oh, I was just a talk about uh, um, creation and and um, the discussion between evolution versus creation and the whole concept and 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 it got these strangers listening in and and so the conversations that that came from that twenty years ago in a taxi cab <laughs> uh, were just mind boggling. So you've been um, part of my life personally for over twenty years, and uh, it was a time when I. Um, had my encounter with Christ, and very soon after, I was introducing. I feel like God set this up. Um, I want to thank you, um, and I have to plug it now. And, and the book has finally arrived, and that's this one. And this is how Islam led me back to Christ. You've endorsed it. Uh, it's finally done, and it's just my personal testimony. And you feature heavily in this. Um, and I encourage people to to get a copy um, at ParusiaMedia.com. Please have a look at it. The ebook is available, and the, and the physical book, but I, I thank you for your words because I struggled with the idea of calling God Father. You know, um, I struggled with the idea of understanding God as an actual Father, and my Islamic friends really hit it home. You, it's an insult to call God Father because we have an earthly Father. And once I discovered reading your your book, the, the popular one on a Father who keeps his promise, going through salvation history, and it leads us to all this. It's all sort of tied in. But God loves us so much, and, and, and that's something I really appreciate in your teachings, that, yes, he allows us to suffer. Yes, he allows us to go through pain and struggles. But on the other side of all that, we'll become uh, deeper and stronger for it. And uh, the covenant he has, he wants to, he's madly in love with us so much that he wants us to be reunited with him. And that freedom of being able to reject him um, is so radical because a lot of people say if, if God is a loving God, why is he allowing suffering? Why isn't everyone just going straight to heaven? But uh, when you think about it and asking your question that you've said in many of your teachings, see, God won't waste his time if that's the case. We're not robots. We're not zombies. Why on earth would God waste his time creating us? We're not just slaves. He doesn't. We don't need to do any house chores for God. Um, we are children of God, and, and he's madly in love with us, and, his, and the radicalness of giving us freedom to reject him is actually so powerful. We don't, we have to, we can't underestimate that. And so I want to thank you for just helping me discover the, the covenant of God has and that whole 4,000 year history in Old Testament leading up to this. It wasn't that God wasn't ready to reveal. It was that we weren't ready to be 
accepting this whole truth of Christ and, and, and God saving us and paying a debt we couldn't pay. I just want to, yeah, thank you for all that. And, but, but this is the, the climax of the resurrection of the body. You mentioned the Eucharist. Looking at the Last Supper, looking at salvation history, looking at all this setup right up to that Last Supper on the cross, and then Jesus dies, and then he rises again, and he's in a glorified body, and he breaks at the road of Emmaus, he breaks the bread. Um, can you tell us this strong connection now, the Eucharist that we now receive, that looks like bread, tastes like bread? Is it in fact that same body that Christ is in heaven right now in his glorified body? Are we participating in this? resurrected christ as we receive this bread what looks like bread can you okay. give us this strong deep connection here now the resurrected one. <laughs> but let me back up a, a step or two by um accepting the expression of your gratitude but only if you accept the expression of my gratitude because i remember vividly uh not only our first few conversations but also that first sharing of your own journey your conversion and how you came so close to embracing Islam. I could get chills at this moment. And I encouraged you then, as you knew you were called to do, to share this, and you did. But to see it now finally out in a book, oh, now it's my turn to say thanks be to God for Charbel and for all of the good that is gonna come from this book and from you sharing this story. I knew almost instantly that we had a friendship that would last for life a partnership. We were kindred spirits. You know, you're younger than me, but at the same time, I, I, I'll race you to even younger still, because I feel as though <laughs> the truth of the Catholic faith makes us like eternally youthful. And no matter what our bodies do and our memories sag, nevertheless, we know that, uh, that, that fatherhood is eternal. It's timeless. Sonship is too. And so it isn't the case that Jesus was begotten, he is eternally begotten. Today have I begotten you. So the mystery of fatherhood and sonship is in some ways more pertinent to the mystery of God than being our creator, because we don't want to make his identity dependent upon us, because we are the ones who are dependent upon him. But it's the freedom of divine love that is unveiled in fatherhood, that he is much more of a father from all eternity in its perfection than I am even though I tell you, I'm so proud of my six kids. And so, you know, what we have to do is we have to look at why did the father send his son to become a human as an infant, to become a boy, to become a teenager, a young adult, an apprentice who learned his, his, his father's trade, and then to go about his public ministry, teaching and preaching and healing and delivering people until he was arrested and maligned and falsely accused, tortured to death, and then the resurrection, you know. And the resurrection is usually treated as though it's proof that you can't keep a good man down, at least not one that good, you know. It's proof that he wasn't just human, but divine. It's proof that, you know, and it is proof, but what it really seeks to display is more than to verify things that we already know, but to open up the eyes of faith to things that we don't know to things that we would almost conclude are unknowable or unrealizable. And that is that Jesus' resurrection, in a certain real sense, is ordered to the Eucharist. The Eucharist wasn't instituted at the farewell supper, sort of like, 
Well, since Palm Sunday, things have got gone from good to bad and from bad to worse. And so we thought we were going to usher in a kingdom and it's obvious now we won't. And so we got to keep a stiff upper lip and just be faithful to the end and I'll be back. You know, no, by instituting the Eucharist, what Jesus shows us is that the end of natural life is not only the beginning of supernatural life, but only when we give consent to the loss of human life out of love for God, will we enter into the fullness of a life that is more than bios, it is more than zoe. It is, in a certain sense, that divine life that God is. He doesn't have life. He is life. So you hear in the fourth gospel, 43 times Jesus speaks of zoe, I am the resur- you know, I am the way, the truth, and the Zoe. I am the resurrection and the Zoe. I am the bread of Zoe. Because the life that he gives us is divine. And the instrument that he uses is the Eucharist, because the mystery of the Eucharist is his resurrected body. And so, you know, in a sense, I go back to what I mentioned before that this is why in Luke 24, Clopas, who is in our tradition, Joseph, his brother, you know, uh, Jesus' uncle. And though he wasn't numbered among the 12, he was obviously familiar with Jesus from following him for quite some time. But Clopas and his companion are prevented from recognizing the risen Savior. And so the conversation begins. The greatest Bible study in all of salvation history is what follows mile after mile for hours until finally they could admit that their hearts were burning within them. But why didn't they recognize him? Because he wasn't ready for them, and they weren't either. And so when he takes, he blesses, he breaks, he gives, that sequence of four divine actions, those four verbs, correspond exactly to what Jesus had done on Holy Thursday in Luke 22. But it's not a flashback. It isn't like, hey, haven't we seen this before? Haven't we heard this? Where were we? The upper room, Holy Thursday, it's the Eucharist. This must be Jesus. No, they weren't numbered among the 12. It's not a deja vu. What it is, is the moment of grace where the Holy Spirit unveils to their eyes something that goes beyond mere appearance, that this is the risen Lord. Well, why did you have to go and wait so long? It's been hours that they were with you they would have had other questions, you know, like what was it like in in Sheol down there in Hades? Who did you see? Who did you bring back? You know, are you going to visit Pilate and give him a little payback, you know, or the Sanhedrin as well? I mean, Jesus seemed to waste almost half of Easter Sunday leading a Bible study as a relative unknown. And then the climax is, of course, to make himself known through the breaking of the bread. And that phrase, breaking the bread, is the idiomatic expression for what we would call the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass, the Holy Eucharist. And what do these two men do? They retrace their steps. They might have been walking faster. They must have been much less glum or sad. But they get back to Jerusalem. They find the 11 in the upper room, and they relate to them what happened. And I can almost imagine Simon Peter thinking, wait a second, you want us to believe that Jesus spent most of Easter Sunday back from the dead with you? What's your name again? Clopas and your companion? Uh, excuse me, but uh, that doesn't strike me as all that plausible. You know, I could, I could, you know, if that had happened, I think Clopas might have been tempted to say, well, maybe if you hadn't denied him three times, he would have spent the day with you and the whole group here, you know? 
Well, if he had, we wouldn't have taken hours to recognize him until he broke the bread. It was the perfect occasion, I suppose, for the clergy and the laity, for the hierarchy of the apostles and Clopas and his friend to square off and start hurling accusations, allegations, criticisms. But instead, Clopas simply bears witness. Our hearts were burning within us. Our eyes were open in the breaking of the bread. And suddenly Jesus shows up. And what does he do? He conducts this great Bible study part two with Clopas and his friend, but the 11 as well, opening up the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, interpreting them in all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I mean, clearly Jesus prioritizes the importance of understanding scripture more than we do. We could come up with a list of 20 things that Jesus should have done on Easter Sunday that he didn't. Why would he spend all of that time going through the law and the prophets? Because the word inspirated is the only way we can come to the word incarnated, but the incarnate word is the only way we can understand the inspired word. As St. Jerome says, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ, but as our Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI put it, and I'm paraphrasing from Verbum Domini, ignorance of Christ's real presence in the Eucharist is ignorance of scripture. You know, we study the New Testament and how it fulfills the old, but it took me 25 years to kind of discover the obvious, something that was hiding in plain view, that the only thing Jesus ever calls the New Testament is the Eucharist. The only time he uses the phrase the New Testament is when he says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the New Testament. He doesn't say, write this in remembrance. He says, do this. So therefore, the New Testament was a sacrament years before it started to become a document, according to the document there in Luke 22, 20, and then 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, The New Testament is like, you know, words, a phrase, but a sign that points beyond itself to Christ in the Holy Eucharist. Christ crucified, risen, and ascended. What we say is the memorial of his passion, death, and resurrection. The memorial is Thursday. The passion and death are Friday. The resurrection is Easter Sunday, and in one hour, what we call the Mass, the Triduum is basically recapitulated right before our very eyes of faith, if we have eyes to see. You know, I would say that that the Eucharist is sort of like, um, you know, it's it's God giving us much more with less. You know, people who don't believe it's a sacrifice say, well, it's a meal. It's the Lord's Supper, you know. Well, you know, as Bishop Wright of Pittsburgh once said, and he was over 300 pounds, so he should know, a meal, he said, it's not even a snack. (laughs) (laughs) By earthly standards, it doesn't rise to the level of a meal. But when you realize that we are feeding upon the bread of life, this is the marriage supper of the, the lamb, because he used the Passover as the occasion to give us this body, and he renews that Passover with us, by giving us that body and offering it, his sacred humanity, to the Father on our behalf in a way that surpasses all of the animals that were ever offered on the altar in the Jerusalem temple. You know, it isn't as though we study the Bible too much. It's that we ponder it too little. And when we contemplate the old and the new in light of Christ's real presence in the Eucharist, once again, our brains and our hearts explode for joy, but also for wisdom. Amen. Amen. It's just so powerful. And you just hearing you there reminds me this whole thing is pointing to the Eucharist. The reading and appreciating scripture is pointing to how do we have scripture in action? The word becoming flesh. This is the reality. And 
we can become one with that flesh, that divine flesh. Hold on, what, hold on one union. second. Wow. One second. I, I want to yes. connect the dots. I just thought of something. Please do. You know, you've mentioned the lamb supper, and it's obviously that it's obviously important to me. It's sort of like the uh, the cornerstone of almost everything I have done because it was the first mass I ever experienced, and it was the sustained eureka moment. And so to discover that the mass is heaven and earth, that it's really what made sense out of the apocalypse, that you know you can't find Antichrist once in the book of Revelation, you can't find the phrase second coming once, what you find is references to the Lamb of God 28 times in some 22 chapters, but also the Amen, the Alleluia, all of the prayers, the songs, and the sacrifice that we call the Mass, that is what John describes on every page of the Apocalypse and every part of his visions. And that's what God used to kind of show me that I went downstairs to a basement chapel, but I was whisked up to heaven in the spirit to the heavenly liturgy of the angels and the saints. And suddenly it occurred to me then what occurs to me now with two of my sons in the seminary studying for the priesthood to be priests of the Diocese of Steubenville, please God that Christ gives us the Holy Spirit, obviously, but he gives certain men this power. Mortal men get the power of the Holy Spirit to speak human words and to transform earthly matter into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the God-man, the second person of the Trinity. Seriously? You believe that mortal men can transform earthly matter into the God-man's resurrected body? You know, I mean, that's like too much. It's way too much. And yet what I would do in connecting the Lamb's Supper to this new book called Hope to Die is to, is to, is to say this, that what's happened to me in study and prayer is the recognition that the reason why the Eucharistic liturgy is stamped into every part of the apocalypse of John is because it's that way in human history, salvation history. It's the Eucharist that gets the mystical body through the persecutions and the pandemics. It's like my daughter said to me last week, Dad, I never realized how much I take the Mass for granted. You know, it, it makes me have a holy hunger for Holy Communion like I never did before. I want to make up for lost time as soon as we can get back. You know, human history is basically directed by the Lord of history, but the Lord of history is the risen Christ who comes to us in the Eucharist. What will the eschaton look like? I don't know, but I can picture something like this. If up until the end, Christ is empowering mortal men to transform earthly matter into himself, the God-man, that I think after the church undergoes the paschal mystery of betrayal, abandonment, denial, just like his own physical body underwent, He's going to say basically to the successors of the apostles and all of the faithful, step aside, it's my turn. As the high priest in heaven, I am going to speak the words, this is my body. Only this time, instead of transforming bread on an altar into his body, he's going to transform all of the dust of all of the saints and all of the tombs and even in all of the oceans into the glory of his own resurrected body. And in the process, give to us our bodies back in terms of the resurrected glory. This is how the Eucharist is, in a certain sense, the drive shaft of human history and what makes human history salvation history. For those who don't have eyes to see, this is patently absurd. But for those who have the eyes of faith, it's like this is what brains were made for. You know, more than closing our mouth upon meat, 
I mean, to close our minds upon these mysteries is sort of like justification for our existence. It's why I'm on the planet. But it's also why we can't wait to get back together to celebrate the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And we should allow ourselves to literally drool with the holy thirst for his precious blood and his sacred body. Because this is not spicy, hot religious rhetoric. This is the hard, cold reality that will outlast America and Australia. And it's the only thing that makes Australia and America meaningful. Yes, we recognize the sacredness of human life that's natural and the tragedy of suffering and death, the loss of human life. But what we ought to do is value the sacredness of divine life immeasurably more and dread those temptations to the misuse of our freedom that would entice us to commit mortal sin. That's the kind of death we ought to dread the most. When God allows us to have what we want instead of what he wants. That's what Paul calls the orge of God or the wrath of God in Romans 1, 18 and 19. When he gives us up to what we want instead of allowing us to get what he wants for us. And so is this pestilence a punishment? Well, in a certain sense it is because we have grievously sinned against the Almighty. But divine punishments are fatherly gestures. God is not ever punishing his people to get back at them. No, he punishes us to get us back to him. When he allows us to experience what we want that's contrary to his law, that's punishment that blinds us. But when he wakes us up through a pandemic or an earthquake or anything else that just reminds us that we're not in control and this life is not all there is, what we should see is the medicine of his mercy dispensed in a way that is anything but flavorful, but something that will restore us to true health. Thanks for letting so, me go on. I just yes, absolutely. Like a um, fire in my heart. Yes. <laughs> well, this is the time. Take advantage of this time. And people are at home, and I was sharing with you offline earlier. Uh, as as tragic as it may seem on the outside, with people suffering and and sick, and 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 um, and it is is quite alarming. Uh, yeah, thousands of people dying internally uh, and me personally uh, in my own family situation being locked down um, and being with the family my prayer life has never been better right. my relationship with my children has never been better um, my, with my wife and, and we uh, we we look at we've got so much to pray for we've got so much to um, appreciate and and all those things we took for granted um, you know that, that they've now in the in the past we, we think of the important things now and we think of yes life after death we think of life with God here and now. Even our own Eucharist is taken away from us. We can't access Mass. But, wow, we have to appreciate that too. If we're a daily communicant, don't take that for granted. You know, Even that could be taken from you. So have a spiritual communion and appreciate what God is doing. But always be ready because we never know our time. And that's why your book is so timely, uh, Hope to Die, and released next week. Basically, the uh, orders are available now, pre-orders, and I encourage everyone to get on. Those in America, St. Paul Center, a website, go there and uh, you get access to the ebook right now. Um, and that's part of the deal. Uh, when you, for every purchase of the physical paperback book, you get a free ebook version as well. So you don't have to wait till next week to get your copy. You'll get a digital copy as of today. Uh, and those in this side of the world, Australia, we will be um, matching that in, in the next day or two. Look at our website. We'll have pre orders open very soon. And then you'll also be able to get the same deal. You can buy a physical version in Australian dollars and then get access to the ebook. So look out for that at perusiamedia.com. Uh, now, we've out of our scheduled time, but I do have some questions. I don't know. Are you happy to answer a couple of these? 
Yeah, let's try to do that. Beckett, is that let's, okay let's, for you? Can you stick around? Yeah, my my dear friend and co-worker Beckett is quite sacrificial and generous with his time, so we can go on a for, good man. for sure. Yes. <laughs> um, so let me open up these questions here. We have quite quite a few, and I'm, I'm just going to sift through, and I, there's one, as uh, quite a few interesting ones here. And you can connect them together, too, if you see a certain common yeah. theme uniting them. Certainly will. So just clicking on this right now. There's one. Uh, here we go. So we have... I'd like to thank Martin, um, who, who's asked this question. And, and Martin's question is, all right, something's happened to my comments. While you're trying to get them, let me also say this, that um, we've had a similar experience in our home uh, where we've had more time together with our three youngest sons, Jerjo and David. And they have led us, especially because two of them are seminarians in the breviary, in the divine office. We never prayed that as a family before morning and evening prayer, you know, and it, it is so unique. And, you know, uh, Kimberly and I have been working down in my library. We've spent more time together, you know, and she has, she has such energy and it is so much fun. I never knew until we've really entered our 40th year of marriage, uh, just how much fun, how much friendship you can have with your bride. And I feel like Israel coming out of the wilderness after 40 years, because we've just really entered into you know, something of what is promised in the sacrament of matrimony we, we see in our kids. None of us are saints. We're all sinners. We go to confession on a regular basis. I go weekly. Kimberly has never suggested that I go too frequently. And so I know that uh, I am still in great need of his mercy. But uh, this event is a strange form of his mercy. Yes, isn't that so interesting? Um, divine office, it's, it's a good, very important prayer of the church. And we've also been doing that as well. Um, it is so rich. Uh, I, the church's best kept secret. Lay people get involved and, and tap into the divine office. It is beautiful. Um, so, Martin, I'd like to uh, 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 mention Martin Shanahan. He has asked, uh, in the economy of salvation, where does purgatory fit in? And so that might be a good time to discuss purgatory and all this. Well, I have a chapter that deals with the souls of the faithful departed who are being purged of the disordered attachments to venial sins. Of course, when you go to purgatory, on the one hand, you experience a joy that exceeds any joy you ever had on earth. You also enter into a pain of suffering that is greater than any suffering you could have endured on earth. You know, and why is that? Well, the joy comes from the certainty that you're going to end up in glory in heaven. The joy also comes from the, re, the certainty that all of the suffering that you're enduring is basically burning off the dross, all of the residual stuff that really was counterfeit, you know, and so you, you have a joy that comes from the certainty you're entering heaven, but you also have the deep need that you desire so that, you know, the souls in purgatory aren't ready to enter into the fiery glory of God's presence. The souls in heaven would freeze to death in the fires of hell. And likewise, the souls in purgatory would find the presence of God just too hot. They haven't learned how to love enough to enter into that and feel really at home. And so there's a sense in which God turns down the heat for those who are in purgatory and even more for those who are in hell. So there really is an inner logic that connects what actions we have freely chosen to perform with their consequences. There never is a kind of legal arbitrariness between what we do and what God does. It isn't an arbitrary reward and punishment system. 
It really is our being transformed into God-like lovers by making our life a gift of love to our loved ones like Jesus did for Joseph and Mary and for his other family members and friends and neighbors in Nazareth, you know, until finally there he is on the cross. And all of us are going to have a cross to bear every day. He didn't just bear one for us. He, he bestows one on us. And he says, follow me every day and take up your cross. And so the people in purgatory are those who we can benefit. And so I also emphasize the need to kind of rediscover the tradition of prayers for the dead. May the souls of the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. We pray that as a family, every time we make a morning offering and at the end of the day as well, but suffrages, sacrifices on behalf of the dead, and even having masses said on behalf of the dead, and not just for those who died in an almost canonizable state, but even for those who didn't die in the church or whatever, our loved ones can be benefited. And so there is a kind of holy and prudent love that would allow us to have masses said for those that seemed so far off. And in this life, we'll never know what benefits might come. On the other side, we're going to find out when these guys give us a whole lot more than a holy high five, how much yeah. it blessed them. And likewise, our children are going to learn from our example and our grandchildren too. And so if we end up in the fires of purgatory, there's going to be a sense of gratitude because we'll know with certainty we're destined for glory in heaven, but there'll also be a sense of relief in the midst of the in intensive suffering because we know that heaven wouldn't be heavenly unless God's fiery love was transforming us to our perfection. And this is what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 3, that those who are going to be saved will suffer loss because they'll go through fire. Well, we don't know exactly how to measure time in purgatory because we're no longer embodied in that state. If we know that time flies when we're having fun, we can imagine how much it slows down when we're in the purgatorial fire. And again, we're reminded of how much we can bless the souls of the faithful departed, but how real that condition is. So we can say, well, they have joy and assurance of heaven. Yeah, but they have more suffering than they've ever known. So if our love is genuine for them, it ought to be expressed in beneficial and salutary ways. And so I have a chapter on that. I might also just mention in response to this that, you know, uh, I do also bring up the discussion of cremation. You know, I do that because Christians don't really believe in the resurrection of this body or yours. I opened the book with a story of how I preached my first funeral sermon as a Presbyterian pastor newly ordained for my grandmother's funeral. And when I was done preaching from John 11, 25, I am the resurrection of the life. My mom came to me afterwards and she said, that was really beautiful, but you don't believe that, do you? You know, that we're going to get these bodies back. I'm like, well, yeah, it's in the creed. It's in the scriptures. And she was just like, I'm not even sure I want that. Well, want it or not, God has it in store for us, you know. And later, my dad, you know, expressed his desire to be cremated. I expressed my desire to show his body care, reverence, and respect, because this was the instrument that God had used to raise me up. Mm -hmm. And so reluctantly, he conceded, okay, I won't be cremated. And as we got closer, he was more at home with that. Afterwards, my mom was so grateful because she was basically complicit at first. I won't go into it now because the church will never approve of cremation, even though the church permits it. It, uh, 
it does so because of the cultural pressures that are on people and sometimes the economic pressures as well. But I would I would say this, that if people are considering cremation, they might consider going on to a YouTube and just looking at what is involved in cremation because it's not simply burning the body in a, in a, in a wooden box. Uh, in fact, the fire never gets hot enough to burn the bones. And so a whole lot of pulverizing has to take place. And it's not a dignified process. And what remains in the so-called cremains, the ashes are often the ashes of the wooden box. And the pieces are the crushed and pulverized bone matter as well. You know, I, I don't want to compare it to sausage, but I remember in Germany, you know, how much I liked sausage until I watched how they made it, you know. And, you know, cremation seems convenient. But when you find out the indignities that the body undergoes, you realize why for the, the fathers of the church, it was an absolutely unfitting way to treat the body. If God has assumed human nature, even our mortal flesh, and has offered it up and then raised it up and glorified it and turned around and fed us with that glorified flesh for the purpose of glorifying our flesh, then you know how we treat our flesh matters. If our bodies are burned, the arm of the Lord is not shortened that he cannot save, much less resurrect. Of course, he can't. But what is the most fitting response on the part of Christians for the last 2,000 years to our belief in the resurrection of the body? It is to show the same kind of care and reverence that you find in the book of Tobit, the same kind of care and reverence that you find in the history of Judaism and Islam, for that matter. But at the same time, it goes to the next level. And it's, and it's a way of teaching that goes beyond words. It goes beyond lectures. It goes beyond books. Because more is caught than taught. Our kids are going to learn more by the lived example we give them than all of the words that they hear or read. And how it was that Christians treated the sick in times of an epidemic or a pestilence, and how they treated the bodies, not only of the believers, but even of the unbelievers, convinced many to become believers because they had never seen such concrete expressions of love. This is a golden opportunity for us to advance the new evangelization and to subvert the new devangelizing that has been going on ever since the Bolsheviks and the Freemasons weaponized cremation to kind of subvert the faith of Catholics and Christians everywhere. There is another ocean through a funnel. <laughs> That's amazing. No, absolutely. And uh, very important question. Thank you. Um, uh, and it's interesting, if I could say, purgatory, we can pray for those in purgatory and they can pray for us. It's funny how... Um, how, how it's de it's designed so we have to help each other. That's right. <laughs> so, One hand washes uh, the other. Yes. That's right. That's just, um, thank you for that, Martin. Um, there's so much more. I'm not going to get through all of them, but I'm trying to sort of sift through. And uh, we have um, Shannon Walsh. Thank you for watching and, and, and doing this. Now, I'm quoting the Bible here, but uh, how would you address Romans uh, chapter 7, 14 to 19, and then particularly 18? I guess I better get that reference up. Uh, in relation to the idea of total depravity. Um, uh, so are you familiar with that? So we've got Romans. Sure. Let me, um, Romans uh, seven. chapter 7, verse 18. So shall I? Um, I think I can address this, yeah. Yes. So what we have in verse 18, well, back up to 17. So then it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want to, is what I do. 
So first of all, I would just cancel this as a text that would support total depravity because I didn't even use this when I was a card-carrying five-point Calvinist of the superlapsarian stripe uh, because this is describing someone who longs to do the good but feels weighed down by the flesh. And I might just point to the Romans commentary that I have published uh, yes. through Baker Academic where I treat this rather extensively, drawing not only from Paul but also the Old Testament as he does and then from the interpretive tradition embodied in Augustine and Aquinas as well. But I do think that the point is well taken, that it's precisely because of the flesh, as Paul describes it. And he doesn't mean that spirit is good and matter is evil. No, because the devil is pure spirit. And so in a certain sense, spirit is even more evil, but the flesh is weak. And so the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, as our Lord reminds his disciples. And so we've got to train our flesh, just like we train our kids to deny themselves instant gratification. It's not because we're ogres, even if they feel like we are. It's because maturity requires deferred gratification. And in this case, our divine maturity requires the Holy Spirit. And so that's why in Romans 7, after accentuating the weakness of the flesh, in Romans 8, he does two other things. He accentuates the power of the Holy Spirit because he speaks of the Holy Spirit 18 times in Romans 8, which is more than the first seven chapters put together. But he also emphasizes redemptive suffering, beginning in chapter 8, verse 17. Glorified with him, provided we suffer with him in order for us to be glorified with him. And basically, Paul goes on to describe how suffering is redemptive when it's united by united to Christ, but it's unendurable unless the Holy Spirit enables us to suffer out of love. Then suddenly we discover when we're suffering, we don't know how to pray as we ought. And God takes our moans and our groans and our sighs that are too deep for words. And the spirit translates the intentions of our heart into the power that comes from on high to enable us to endure to the very end. And so as we suffer with the help of the Holy Spirit, we are conformed to Christ. When Paul says nothing will separate us from Christ, he doesn't enumerate various kinds of sin, slander, adultery, idolatry, covetousness, these, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. No, what he enumerates is a list of seven different forms of suffering. So he goes into, you know, pestilence and nakedness and peril and sword, seven different forms of suffering that don't separate us from Christ, and no wonder, because they're precisely what conform us to Christ who suffered redemptively to give us the spirit to empower our feeble little sufferings, our meager pains with a redemptive value that they would never have and a sanctifying power that only comes from on high. This is the rock solid truth of the Catholic gospel. And it makes so much better sense out of Paul, most especially in Romans. One of my first tape series, you might remember Charbel was Romanism in Romans because we used to That's use right. Romans as the weapon to target Catholics. And the more I spent time in Romans, the more I realized that the only thing that really makes sense out of everything is the inner logic of the Catholic faith, which Paul obviously shared and taught. Thank you. Well, um, I hope that answers uh, that question is so much. And I encourage anyone who, if we don't get to all of them, uh, we'll endeavor to get to the, to these answers uh, for you on your behalf and, um, and get back to you and, and point you in the right direction. Sure, no, can, um, do we have, can I suggest we go for like three or four more minutes just from a, sure. for the sake of my friend Beckett and I to get back home for evening yes. prayer? 
But one thing I would say is this, before we tackle that last question, thanks be to God for this connection, because once you do it, you realize, hey, this is doable. It isn't that yes. hard, even if it's 14 <laughs> hours apart. So let's just kind of pledge to do it again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there you go, everyone. We'll do a round two at some point, um, and I'll work with Dr. Scott Hahn to make that happen. So I'm sorry if, I'm, I'm, uh, if I skip your question here, um, but I, I just want to... Yeah. get uh one let's uh look at uh viv has a very interesting question here viv uh, and he goes to a baptist church uh, a youth group and uh, as you know uh, in the baptist there's talk about faith alone um, um however uh so being justified by faith alone is one thing but there's this talk about a secondary importance of work so preaching and teaching and reading scriptures and doing all these things are secondary so they, we need to do those things, um, but faith is primary. So those works are secondary, and that does not mean that we can keep sinning, they say. How would you respond? Um, so the faith alone gospel, but, but putting faith in action, I, I guess, there's an understanding that, um, that uh, they say you can um, still do these things, but it's, it's faith that still saves you ultimately, not your, not your works. Right. We would say sola fide in this sense. Well, we can think mm. of uh, the tantum ergo, you know, sola fide sufficit, the Latin phrase that only faith suffices. We can't be saved apart from faith. Only faith is what unites us to Christ. So we're saved only by faith, but not by a faith that is alone. So if sola is an adverb only, Catholics can affirm it. But for Luther, it was an adjective describing that faith which is alone by itself, apart from works of charity. And that's what profits nothing, as Paul is so clear in 1 Corinthians uh, 13 about. Uh, and so in Romans 3.28, when Paul says we're justified by faith apart from works of the law, Luther, you know, added the German word allein so that he makes this his slogan. We are justified by faith alone, sola fide. And he famously said to in a in a sermon that you know if if he committed adultery multiple times in a day it would not affect his status as a justified sinner. When I think Paul would beg to differ, I think what really convinced me was this: that the only time the Holy Spirit inspired a New Testament writer to actually use the phrase "faith alone" was nowhere in any of Paul's writings, but only in James. And so in James 2.20, what we read is inspired by the Spirit, and it basically says that we are not justified by faith alone. You believe, so does the devil. The demons believe and shudder. So the idea that faith alone justifies is true, but that faith by itself is dead. And so they say, well, what James is talking about is a different kind of justification. Well, he uses the term faith just like Paul. He uses the term justified just like Paul. He cites the example of Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 6, just like Paul. The only place that James clearly differs from Paul, he uses Abraham, he uses the term justify, he uses Genesis 15, verse 6, but he speaks of works here in James 2 as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, the poor, the widows. Whereas in Romans 3, the works of the law that Paul explicitly focuses on 
is what? It isn't feeding the hungry, it's circumcision, which is what his opponents, the Judaizers, were trying to do to the newly baptized Gentile converts. So faith is the same in Romans 3 and James 2. Justify is the same. Abraham is the same. But what differs is the sacramental signs of the old covenant that have been, in a certain sense, transcended by the sacraments of the new. This is why we're justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so we can't go into it much more. I do have the commentary on Romans that I would emphasize or recommend, and there are a lot of other teachings that you know about that you can recommend as well. But I see it just turned 9.30. And so, you know, uh, as a gesture of friendship to my friend Beckett and also family solidarity, I just want to say to you, Charbel, dear brother, and to all of our audience too, thanks be to God for this opportunity. Thanks be to God for the crisis and the challenges that all of us face, even the suffering and the dying that God alone can transform. I I join my prayers to yours. I cannot wait for the mystical body of Christ to come out of her tomb. You know, I, I am I'm convinced that the church is going to be awakened from her slumbers in a new way. You know, when Jesus was about to ascend, he said to the disciples, wait until you're clothed with power from on high, the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, wait nine days, this will be the first novena. Of course, we know that novenas come from that tradition that the disciples waited nine days from Ascension Thursday until Pentecost Sunday, but they didn't know how long they were going to wait. You know, and after eight days, they didn't know it would just be one more day. So after all of these days of waiting, What we really are doing is sort of similar to what the disciples were doing in the upper room alongside of Mary. We're praying and we're preparing ourselves to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, whether the release comes from the state authorities at Pentecost or hopefully before, it won't really matter because the supernatural grace that God wants to give us exceeds what we have enough faith to ask him for. He wants to give us more than we want from him. So we can be humble and yet confident in approaching the throne of mercy and begging for him to do much more than before, even though we feel like we have much less from here on. Amen. Thank you. That's a great, great uh, close there. I really uh, encourage everyone um, to pray for the apostolate St. Paul Center, for Dr. Scott Hahn, his family, his work at at the Franciscan University, uh, for all of the books, uh, the 40 plus books now, people reading it that this impacts them in a real way transforms them so we can be really united with with our our lord Uh, let's try to do this again one thing you mentioned franciscan just this morning our university announced because of the pandemic and the economic consequences that everyone who enrolls at the university in the fall semester is going to get that first semester entirely tuition free it's a step of faith it's a wow. high-risk venture, but I am so grateful and excited to let this be known down under as well as, you know, throughout the States yes. and everywhere else. We have people from like 40 or 50 different countries. And so please consider yourself or your your younger ones invited to consider Franciscan because I tell you, our six kids have gone through and they're never going to be the same. They were brought so much closer to Christ. I'll, I'll make sure we send uh, all the links uh, and, and let everyone know Excellent. about this. This is such an important People can Thanks. do correspondence in there. So That's great. Um, thank you so much. Hope to Die is available um, 
for pre-order right now. You get the ebook. Go to the St. Paul Centre for those in America. Go to the Perusia Media website for those in Australia. And uh, please pray for this partnership that we will flourish. We do hope Scott Hahn will come to Australia one day. We want mm-hmm. working on a uh, Perusia Academy, and we like to see more of an alliance with the St. Paul Centre and try to raise up future leaders and teachers in the future. So I'll give you more details about that, Scott, uh, uh, in the future. Um, but love to see more of a collaboration there. But uh, um, thank you again. Know of our prayers. And uh, thank you to Beckett. And I'll I'll close here. Shall we close with a prayer? Um, Would you mind leading us in a prayer? Sure, I can. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of life. And most especially for the gift of Jesus Christ, from whom we have received new life, eternal life, And in the power of his name, we ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be renewed in our hearts, in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, in our parishes, in our dioceses, our cities, and our states, that the Spirit might blow across this the face of the earth in a brand new way and recreate your people and conform them to Christ. So hear us as we entrust our prayers to the sacred heart of Jesus and the immaculate heart of Mary. Holy Mary, our hope, seed of wisdom. Pray Pray for for us. us. St. Paul, pray for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Absolutely.